My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and warring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or arbored the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow and all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for these words. They are, they are serious words. They are solemn words. They are awful, also hopeful words. I pray that the meaning of them will become clear to us as a congregation. I ask that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let your words remain. And may they change us through the power of your Spirit. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Uh, This is our fourth meditation that we are doing on the cross. As a church, we have decided that on the last Sunday um, of each month, we're going to take a break from whatever series we're going through, and and we're going to take a fresh look at the cross. Um, We're doing this for a number of reasons, but uh, let me just give you one that struck me just this past week. Um, I was going through the Gospels, I was going through, through Matthew and Mark, and both of them describe the crucifixion in a very similar way. Um, they tell a lot about the same sufferings that Jesus went through. Um, they, they, they detail the crucifixion the same way. And both of them mention how Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and the response to these words is the same in both of those Gospels. People thought that Jesus was calling for Elijah. Because in Aramaic... Eli and my God sound very similar, so they thought that he was calling for Elijah, and then Jesus dies, and it was a Roman soldier, a pagan Roman soldier who heard those words and saw the way Jesus died and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And I want you to notice that there was religious people at the crucifixion, people who knew the Old Testament. People who knew about Elijah. These religious people, they saw what was happening before their very eyes and they missed it. They missed it. They didn't get the meaning behind it. It was only this Roman soldier who knew nothing about the Israelite faith. He was the one who got it. But the religious missed it. The religious don't understand often. And you can see this um, even in the Muslim faith. The Muslim understanding of the cross, in which Muslims have a severe difficulty with the cross. Um, they, 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 they understand crucifixion, and, and they, um, they see that in our Bible, and they believe much of our Bible. But they have serious problems with Jesus shouting out from a cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they simply don't believe it happened, they, and they believe that Jesus went to heaven before he died on the cross, if he was in the cross at all. And many have such a problem with it that uh, they actually believe that it was Judas himself somehow was transferred to the cross. And it was him who died there because you can't have Jesus dying on a cross saying those words. And so often it's the religious people, those who've grown up in a religious setting, that miss what the crucifixion of Jesus is about. We're in danger of the same thing. And so one of the things we've decided to do is once a month to take time to relook at the cross to make sure we understand the meaning. What is going on here? We don't want to miss it. When Jesus was on the cross, He cried out the first words of the psalm we just read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And actually the language that the New Testament writers use here when it says He cried out, That's the only time in Scripture you'll ever have that word cried out. It's a very unusual word, and it is used for a a horrific cry. Almost the kind of cry that a a wounded animal would have. It's a, a horrific cry, and it is used here of Jesus, a cry of extreme distress. And if you go through commentaries, both liberal and conservative scholars, they all come to an agreement of this. They say that this cry here, this cry actually happened. This is true. Whether, whether people believe all the Scripture is true or not, uh, whether you're a liberal, conservative, in your scholarship, you point to this, to this and you say it happened because nobody 
would have as the leader of their faith, as their leader dying a death like this, on a cross, screaming, God, you have left me. No one would make that up. This happened. And this statement was certainly problematic for a lot of the would-be followers of Jesus in the first century. They had a hard time believing that the leader of any faith could die a death like that. I mean, many people have died better deaths than this. Uh, when John Huss, he, was, uh, he had a, a big influence on Martin Luther, when he was burned at the stake, his last words were, we praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee. Great last words. Thomas Beckett's last words before his execution were, I am ready to die for the Lord, that in my blood the church may obtain liberty and peace. Great last words. Latimer and Ridley were burned at Oxford in 1555, and in the midst of the flames, Ridley cried out, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. I mean, when, when I read accounts like that, I'm inspired. That's, that's how you want to die right there. But Jesus, I mean, he seems to kind of break down in the end, kind of lose it. Screams when all along he was under such control and calm and peace, and he screams out, God, you've left me. Now I would say that Jesus was not cowardly here. Jesus had not lost it. Actually, I would say these are some of the most courageous, are the most courageous words ever. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This points to the very heart of the gospel and what he went through. When Jesus cried these out, you need to understand that in the Bible, there's not, in the Hebrew Bible, there's not chapters and there's not book titles. You go by the first words. And so when you want to talk about a psalm, you would just say the first word. And when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is Psalm 22. Psalm 22. You want to understand what's happening here, look at Psalm 22. That's what's happening here. Every gospel writer refers to this psalm in their account of the death of Jesus. Every one of them. It is the most referred to Old Testament text in the New Testament. 24 times it is quoted. Over and over, people, the New Testament writers say, you want to understand Jesus? Look at Psalm 22. Look at Psalm 22. Now, which is kind of confusing because this is a psalm of King David. And it says so at the very beginning. When it says... To the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, that's the name of the tune, um, a psalm of David. It's a psalm of David. Yet if you know anything about David's life, he certainly suffered, but he never suffered like this. I mean, verse 14 says that his heart is melting like wax. Verse 15 describes his tongue as being swollen from thirst and sticking to the roof of his mouth. Verse 16 says that his hands and his feet have been pierced. And literally in Hebrew it says, lions 
my hands and feet. Lions. And, and, and so translators, they struggle to translate that, but what they could think is, my hands and my feet are being mauled like lions would maul them. Biting and piercing. And verse 18 says that they divided up his garments and they cast lots for him. Now this is something that, the, the casting of lots is something that executioners did. This wasn't just a common killing. This is what, ex, what executioners did in which after they, were, they would kill somebody to get payment, they would cast lots to see who got his clothes. And so what you're seeing here is not just a normal death, you're seeing actually an execution. So here's a man whose hands and feet have been mauled, dying of thirst, stripped of his clothing. People are mocking him and he cries out that God has abandoned him as he faces execution. Now you can study all the life of David and you'll never come across something like this. Never. He never faced a public execution and he certainly didn't see his suffering as somehow saving all of the nations like the rest of this psalm talks about. You know, David, he's talking about a greater king. He's, he's talking about a greater suffering. And he's talking about, as the New Testament writers correctly point, he's talking about Jesus who points to this and says, you want to understand what's going on here? Read that psalm. Read that psalm. In which Jesus, we've looked at, He did not cry out, my hands, my hands. He did not cry out, my feet, my feet. He did not cry out, people are hurling insults at me. He didn't cry out, my head, my head, or my back, my back. Jesus cried out when it came to the heart of His suffering. He said, my God, my God. Why have you left me? When he wants to talk about his suffering and let you know how he is suffering, he talks about his abandonment from his father. Real, complete abandonment here. And this this cry speaks of something that is unimaginable. It's interesting if you you read through the, the accounts of the crucifixion, what the New Testament writers decide not to write. You can tell they're definitely not modern writers because if we were describing the crucifixion, it'd be gory. I mean, you would, you would have blood squirting. You would, you would, it would be a description of the, the whip and the cat of nine tails and flesh ripping. That is what we would have. That's what we would describe it. It's not there. It's not what they focus on. It's not like you know, the movie The Passion of the Christ and all that it focused on. That's not it. When in college, I can remember I went to a worship service one time, and they were talking about the crucifixion the pastor was, and man, he, he really just laid it on us about all of the physical sufferings of Jesus. On and on and on. I mean, went in detail. And finally, at the end, he handed out nails. And he put them in each one of our hands. So I want you to hold this and think of the suffering of Jesus. And I remember at the time, I was emotionally moved. But now looking back at that, I think, you know what? He missed the point. He really missed the point about what Jesus was going through. That's not what the New Testament writers focus on. Because you don't look at the physical pain to understand what's happening to Jesus. What the writers do describe is this. He was abandoned. And he was mocked. 
He was abandoned and he was mocked. You know, Jesus' words of abandonment, they reveal just how much he suffered. When we were a real little church a few months ago, and we were in our house, I talked some about this, and I, were to, I said to the 20 or so people that were there, you know what, if you were to get up, walk out the door right now, say, Joel, you know, the Redeemer thing, no way, sorry, gone, thanks for inviting me, but no thanks, and you were to all leave, I would be hurt. I really would, I would be hurt. But I would not be devastated. Now, if my wife, who did just get up and walk out... <laughs> Um, if my wife got up and she walked out and she said, the marriage is over. I've had it. Enough of this. I'm leaving. If she did it, I would be devastated. Because the reality is, I do know a lot of you guys. I know some of you fairly well, but not like I know my wife. And I love you guys a lot, but not like I love my wife. And separation from her would devastate me Far more than separation from you. And that helps us to understand what Christ is going through. When he says, my God, my God, why have you left me? And how that is the source of his agony. Because he has never known separation from his Father. They have always shared perfect communion. Perfect love and affection. For all of eternity. And now that's broken. We cannot understand the pain that is there. When he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at this point, he says, my God, my God. And it is the only time in Scripture that he ever calls his father God. All throughout Scripture, he says, my father, my father. But here he no longer feels that relationship. All he feels is total absence. No joy, no loving presence. And it's the source of his agony. Another reason that this really tells of the agony of Jesus is, well, you know, if, if you were to look at a bird nest and you were to see a uh, you know, mother bird feeding its babies and a little bird were to fall down, and you would think, man, that's sad. You know, the bird died right there. And he's like, that's really sad. That, that mother bird's got to feel pretty bad. And if you were to compare that to a real parent, one of us here, and their child running across the street and getting hit. Now, there's no way you could compare the pain of a mother bird with the pain of a mother human. You can't even compare the two. Because a, a human has so much deeper emotion, is a much higher being, and so the loss of one of its own is so much deeper. Now apply that to Christ. Christ. Apply that to the Father. So much deeper than us. Such a higher being than us. And the loss that He felt, we cannot even imagine. We cannot even imagine. What Christ is experiencing here is hell. It's hell. Real hell, which is separation from the life-giving Father. Well, the psalmist says that when people hear, hear this cry and they see this suffering, they mock him. Look at verses 6. And it says, For you, oh, sorry, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. 
They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And every gospel writer includes this mocking. Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? As they would spit in his face. Matthew 28 says that they would mock him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they would put a crown of thorn on his his head. They would give him a reed and they would mockingly bow down to him. They'd say, hey, you who would destroy the temple in three days, build it up. Not looking too good right now, Jesus. Save others. You can't save yourself. Hey, if you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. What's the matter? Can't come down? Mocking. Mock. But this mocking shows us who Jesus is. I mean... Why did they mock Jesus? Do you think they mocked Him because He said, love your neighbor as yourself? Do you think they they spat on Him because He healed people? How dare you heal people? Do you think they they gave Him blows because of the way that He helped the poor? Was, Was He stripped of His clothes because He was a great teacher? It was none of those things. It's because of what he claimed to be. What he claimed to be. It's interesting, if you were to talk to all the religious leaders around the world, different religions, and you were to ask them their thoughts on Jesus, you would get pretty much the same answers. You know, he's a really good man. He was a good teacher. I think he was a man of love. He was a humble guy. But you don't mock a good man. A humble guy. If you were to ask secular historians about Jesus, they're too going to describe this man full of compassion, things like that, but you don't mock somebody who's full of compassion. Yet Jesus is mocked, and he is mocked because of his claims. He claimed to be king, and people hated him for it. He claimed to be the Son of God, and people hated him for that. Some of you might be familiar with the story, or the, the author, Anne Rice. Um, she wrote Interview with a Vampire. And years ago, she became a believer. And she became a believer when she was actually doing research for one of her new books um, out of Egypt. And, and so she, she's doing research for this. And as any good writer would do, you look up all the sources about things. And she was studying Jesus. Jesus was going to be weaved in this story. And so... She's really looking up all the scholarship about it, and she is as pagan as they come. And through her studies of this historical Jesus, she actually became a Christian. And she noticed some things. And, and let me read you this. And, and some excerpts of this are in Tim Keller's book, uh, um, the, his new book that came out, and also in Anne Rice's um, book in the back. But she says this The skeptical arguments that insisted that the gospel writers were suspect or were written too late to be of eyewitnesses, all of those arguments lacked coherence and were full of conjecture. Some of the books I read were nothing more than assumptions piled upon assumptions. Absurd conclusions were reached on little or no data at all. 
The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who somehow stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified and had nothing to do with Christianity's founding, which came years later, that whole picture, which floated in the liberal circles that I had frequented for 30 years, that case was never made. But not only was that case not made, I found something even more surprising. I discovered that these scholars, so many of them who devoted their whole life to New Testament scholarship, they disliked Jesus. Some pitied him as a helpless failure. Others sneered at him. Some showed outright contempt. Now, I had never come across this in any other field of research I studied. For example, the people who go into Elizabethan studies are not out to prove that Elizabeth was an idiot. People in Elizabethan studies do not make snickering remarks about her or spend their careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. Occasionally, scholars will study a villain in history, but even then, they tend to argue for the importance of his or her place in history. But in general, scholars don't spend their lives in the company of historic figures who they openly despised. But these New Testament scholars detest and despise Jesus Christ. It's an interesting observation which led her down the path to realizing she had to take serious Jesus' claims. It's the claims of Jesus that make us mock Him. If He is who He says He is, there is nothing for us to do except to throw ourselves down in worship and adoration to pledge to Him absolute allegiance. And if He is not who He says to be, there's nothing left for us to do except to mock Him and to get rid of Him. And any person who has read the Bible and given this serious thought will realize that there's no other options for us. C.S. Lewis said, he wrote, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying this really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else a madman or something worse. You can either shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And this is why people hated Jesus. That's why he is still mocked. It's because Jesus has given us only two options. Fall down at his feet and call him Lord. Or call him a fool and mock him. Any time that you treat the teachings of Jesus as just being good teachings, but not authoritative, you mock him. Anytime you you think that Jesus cannot be working through suffering, whether it's the suffering or the hardships in your life, something like that, you mock His hardship and His sufferings, which brought about a great work. 
Anytime you think that God has abandoned you, no longer hears your cries, you mock Him. And the fact that He was abandoned for you so that you would never have to be. If Christ is who He claims to be, then it's either all or nothing in your allegiance to Him. There is no picking or choosing what you will obey. That's mockery. There's no pretending to to find your happiness and wealth or power instead of Christ. That's mockery. There can be no half-hearted worship, half-hearted prayers when we get together. That is mockery. If Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God who took on hell for you, it demands everything. Absolute devotion. You know, I'll end with this. A contrast that I saw a couple years ago, and maybe you guys remember the story. There was a Danish cartoon that depicted Muhammad. Do you remember that? And the whole Muslim world was, was rioting. Embassies were swarmed. They demanded apologies. Reason being, their leader of their faith cannot be mocked. I kept saying that over and over. He cannot be mocked. Yet Christianity embraces the one who was mocked. Who was utterly humiliated. And when we are hated, and when we are despised, we are simply following the same road, and we are working out salvation in the world the same way. It's the reason that we are going to come and celebrate this table here in remembering why Jesus was mocked, remembering His cry of abandonment, remembering why Christ was stripped of His clothing so that we can be clothed in righteousness.